The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, CAPS Managing Editor, who joins us, as always, from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, all week we have been marking a very important anniversary, 67 years ago this week. 29 African and Asian countries representing 1.5 billion people, or 54% of the world's population back then, got together for a very pioneering conference in the Indonesian city of Bandung, which helped to then pave the way for what would become the non-aligned movement. Now, here's a flashback from one of those old-timey newsreels for those of you who may not be familiar with what was going on at the time, and it just gives you a little sense of the mood of the moment. Afro-Asian conference at Bandung, being the first of its kind ever held, naturally aroused great local interest as well as worldwide attention. President Sukarno of Indonesia, arriving to attend one of the last sessions, evidently had quite a reception. Arab countries were among the 29 nations taking part in the discussions, and the talks covered a wide field. India's Prime Minister, Mr. Nehru, played a leading role throughout the meeting, so did Mr. Chow Enlai, Communist China's premier. You got to love those old newsreels, Kobus. They, uh, they, they remind me of The Simpsons every time. <laughs> it's just kind of funny that that was news. But again, that was a very American or European take on what went down in, in Bandung. But really, something very important happened there. And it was the, the seeds of what would later become the non-aligned movement. And that really emerged after the Korean War when 120 countries that refused to formally align with either the Soviet or the U.S. blocs during the Cold War began to take shape. But since the end of the Cold War in 1989 and the early 90s, it really didn't feel like those movements were relevant anymore. There were no more blocs. The lines between capitalist and communist began to blur. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, the former paramount leader of China, was instrumental in that with his reform and opening up agenda that really started to make China emerge as a very, very capitalist economy. And then here in Vietnam, where I join you from today, there was the Doi Moi campaign that also opened up the economy and led to, to really decades of booming economic growth that really looked a lot more capitalist than communist. But all of that now seems to be changing, and it does feel like blocks are starting to once again form. Granted, they're not fenced in with the same ideology, but if you go to Washington, you're going to hear a lot about the new geopolitical struggle between democracy and autocracy. And Cobus, you and I, we heard about this just a couple of weeks ago in our discussion with Hoover Institution scholar Elizabeth Economy, who talked about how it was a zero-sum game, that if autocracy from China was, was growing, that that would come at the expense of democracy and U.S. interests. And, and that sentiment is also widely shared in Beijing, in Tehran, in Caracas, in Moscow, where the focus is about confronting Washington and limiting U.S. hegemonic influence. So, while a lot of this has been underway for a number of years now, this is not new trends here, 
The war in Ukraine seems to have crystallized it in such a way that it's becoming a lot more reminiscent of the Cold War when those sharp lines were clearly drawn. And if you want to see what this looks like, just plain as day, just look up the White House readout of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris's meeting with visiting Tanzanian President Samia Suluhu Hassan, where this was just last week, in fact, where Harris was actively lobbying the president to join the United States in condemning Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. As far as I know, Hassan did not bite. Hassan, like a lot of developing country leaders, is remaining neutral, or at least in not taking a, a, a very strong position. And in that sense, all of a sudden, as someone who grew up in the Cold War, I'm starting to get this feeling like, wow, this is here we go again. Here we are once again in this kind of movement of countries not wanting to be pulled to one side or the other. So all of a sudden, that idea that all those global South countries like Tanzania, who all have made it very clear that they don't want to take a side in the current conflict in Europe or even between the escalating tensions between the U.S. and China, that maybe some of those ideas that were introduced back in Bandung in the 1950s still have some relevance today. And Kobus, you even went so far last week in one of your columns that you wrote for our newsletter as to introduce this idea of a new non-aligned movement. Tell us more about that. Well, I was I was you know kind of drawing on on the writing of of a, of a bunch of other people, including our guest today. Um, but you know what what struck me is that that on the one hand um, we you know kind of unlike the previous non-aligned movement, it's we we're not seeing two very distinct kind of you know political economic systems up against each other you know um it's it's kind of capitalism across the board not rather than capitalism versus you know non-capitalism um albeit different forms of capitalism um you know kind of are, are, are butting heads at the moment what what also struck me is that in a lot of cases um this this these new patterns reflect a reality that that many of these countries in the global south have more options than they used to have in the 90s for example um and you know and this is particularly true for financing options um so we're seeing you know like thanks largely to china we we're seeing the emergence of of non-western financing financing institutions like the asian infrastructure investment bank um, that that you know kind of just diversifies the, the the number of options available to these countries and crucially I think removes some kind of enforcement tools from from what used to be a, a unipolar system led by the United States. So I think in a lot of ways these factors are kind of you know coming together to 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 kind of to to change the landscape in in what what is now turning out to a, a somewhat old timey way. Yeah, well, let's dive in a little bit deeper now into this idea of a new non-aligned movement and whether or not that metaphor, that framing even applies today. Jorge Heine is a research professor at the Party School of Global Studies at Boston University, and he's also a former Chilean ambassador to South Africa, to India, and to China. And he has been thinking a lot about this lately. He's also the co-author of a new book on the issue with a particular focus on Latin America Active Non-Alignment and Latin America, a Doctrine for the New Century. He also, one more thing, he also wrote a wonderful essay for us on our website, Africa, Latin America, and the Active Non-Alignment Option. A very good morning to you, Ambassador Heine from Boston. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Cobus. 
Thank you for the opportunity. It's really an honor to have you join us and to talk about this moment that we're in. Again, people have struggled to define where we are now. So we had the Cold War, we had the post-Cold War, and a lot of people have said that the invasion of Ukraine marks a new era, and again, still to be defined. You suggest that this era is ripe for the emergence of what you called non-alignment 2.0. Tell us more about that. Yes. Well, let me tell you where we started from uh, with my colleagues, uh, Carlos Fortin and Carlos Ominami, when we conceived uh, this project and this uh, proposal. And that is, we looked at where Latin America was. And we found that Latin America was really in a very difficult uh, predicament. Uh, According to ECLAC, Latin America in 2020 went through its worst economic crisis in 120 years uh, because of the pandemic, of course, but also because of the economic impact it had. Um, the economy went down by 7.7% the GDP in 2020. That is more than twice the negative growth that the world economy had. And Latin America was also ground zero of the pandemic in early 2022, Latin America had with 8% of the world's population, 30% of the world's deaths. So uh, it doesn't get any worse than that. And yet we saw there was very little sense of urgency in government, in academia, in the media about what should be done. And we said, well, we need something new. We need something different. And we cannot, once again, be squeezed as we were during the first Cold War in the 50s and 60s, uh, between then the United States and the Soviet Union, and now between the United States and China. We must look out for ourselves. We must put our own interests first. And that is where we came up with this notion of active non-alignment. Active non-alignment takes a page from the 1950s, from the Bandung Conference that you mentioned, from the ideas of Jawaharlal Nehru, Nasser, Sukarno, Tito, and so on. But it also adapts them to the new century. And here, let me emphasize one point that is that is very important that, and you should uh, keep in mind as you elaborate on this. Uh, there is no longer a third world in the sense that there was in the 60s and 70s. We are now dealing with what I like to call a new South, that is the emerging economies, China, India, South Africa, Brazil, the the BRICS, of course, but also others, Indonesia, Turkey. Therefore, this whole notion of, you know, developing countries as engaging in what was known as the diplomacy of the Cahiers de Doléance, in which they went to the north, to northern capitals, to ask for money, for transfers, is no longer current. Now, there's been a massive transfer of wealth from the North Atlantic to the Asia-Pacific. That is where the wealth is. There are more billionaires in Beijing than in New York City. If that doesn't signal a shift, I don't know what does. And that is where the action is. So our notion of active non-alignment is based on two pillars, as it were. One of them is that we should not take sides in the current uh, conflict, in the current differences, in the current tensions between China and the United States, that's number one. And number two, that we should look much more to Asia and uh, to Africa than we have until now. You know, in in talking about the the active non-alignment, where does the active part part lie there? Like how, you know, kind of how how is the activeness of the current emerging non-aligned movement different from the old one? 
Sure. Well, the ba- our basic point is the following. In the non-alignment movement as it started, there was a strong, if you might want to call it that way, defensive element in the sense that these were new countries, young nations that were emerging uh, to independence from uh, colonialism in Africa and Asia, in, in the Caribbean, Latin American countries, of course, had been independent for a long time. And there was a strong defensive element in the sense that uh, they wanted to protect themselves from, uh, you know, the effects of the conflict between the two superpowers, between the United States and the Soviet Union. What we are suggesting is that in this new environment, in this new um, world economy that we are looking at, uh, there are so many more possibilities for the countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Um, there is a wonderful concept that has emerged by a colleague of us that has actually a, a chapter in our book, Leslie Elliot Amijo. She calls it collective financial statecraft. And that is what has replaced, in our view, the old notion of the, the diplomacy, the carrière, the doléance. Now we have entities like you yourself mentioned, like the AIIB, like the New Development Bank, uh, based in Shanghai, that were initially disparaged uh, by Western commentators and that now have come into their own and are playing a very key role. So uh, the active part here comes in the sense that uh, countries in the Global South can now work together and uh, make a difference and uh, move forward in their economic and social development with their own resources, with resources in the Global South, as opposed to the old uh, dependence on northern resources. But with respect, Ambassador, the idea that the New Development Bank and the AIIB are examples of this would actually play into what I can imagine a lot of people in Washington would suggest is exactly taking a side and and aligning yourselves with a Beijing worldview. Again, I'm not suggesting that's accurate or not, but that would definitely be the perception among a lot of people in the United States and even some parts of Europe as well. How do you avoid these lines that are so curvy and blurry and they're not very clear? So yes, China is a developing country in part, but in, in other ways, it's not a developing country and it's a key actor in one of the standoffs with a great power, with another great power. Now that's a very good point. But our, our notion, our proposal is not to look solely, not to look exclusively at these new entities. Obviously, countries in Latin America continue to interact mainly with the World Bank, with the IMF, with the Bretton Woods institutions. All we are saying is that now there are alternatives we should look at them as well. Competition is a good thing. I think it's not a coincidence that Washington strongly opposed the creation of the AIIB and did look kindly on the creation of the New Development Bank. Why? Because it means there is competition. We are not saying we should go you know, only to these new institutions. All we're saying is there are alternatives. Now, there are five South American countries that have joined the AIIB, in an interesting development, Uruguay has just now joined the uh, New Development Bank, which is expanding beyond the, the BRICS members. So there are alternatives. There is competition. There is a menu of options. And that is what active non-alignment is all about. I, I've seen the, the discussion about this kind of breaking down across, you know, like across north-south lines in, in, in lots of ways with, you know, as as you, as you articulated, um, 
you know, many many of the southern kind of southern viewpoints, are, you know, cohering around this idea of countries making up their own minds or not being pressured, and this has been the the line that we saw from China as well. Um, and whereas, you know, a, a lot of the global north discussion has has essentially kind of chalked this up to either Russian influence, Chinese influence, or or you know, kind of a, a kind of a combination of those two being you know frequently around issues like oh, these countries are so dependent on on, for example, grain imports from, from a place like Russia that they can't afford to 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 vote their conscience. Um, so where do you draw the line? You know, you know kind of to which extent do, do you see these as, as really autonomous countries looking after their own position? And to which extent are you also seeing influence from, from a place like China? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. But let me um, hark back a little uh, and step back a little bit from the uh, Ukraine war. And let us go back to the pandemic, uh, the pandemic that hit uh, Latin America so badly. And this pandemic coincided with uh, a, you know, a significant debate that was going on uh, in the United States and elsewhere about what was referred to as the role of extra-regional powers in Latin America. And by that was, was referred, of course, China, uh, Russia, Iran, in some cases, India. And the notion that was put forward in a number of circles is that these were bad influences, that this was a bad idea, that these countries really didn't have anything to do in Latin America. And the Latin America should stick to its traditional partners, meaning the United States and a few Western European powers. Well, what happened with the pandemic? What happened with the pandemic is that the country that came through uh, at uh, the beginning and when it was mostly needed, when uh, PPE was needed, when masks were needed, and then where vaccines were needed, were some of these very countries. It was China that came through with a significant amount of vaccines. And I know this very well. I'm from Chile. And uh, China played a key role in bringing vaccines very early on to Chile and also to other countries. So did Russia in some cases, did India, although India had to withdraw at some point. Now, that, it seems to me, is an excellent example why this notion that Latin America in particular should stick only to the tried and true, to the traditional partners, to uh, the United States and a couple of Western European nations is so anachronistic. It doesn't have anything to do with the modern world. What you need today is more options. And in a global economy, in this globalized world in which we live in, Latin America needs to interact with, well, the whole world and many more countries rather than limit herself uh, to the traditional partners. So I think this goes way beyond uh, the situation in, in Ukraine. So this was this was really something very interesting that happened here in Vietnam last month when the president of Sierra Leone, Julius Madabio, came over to Hanoi and met with Prime Minister Pham Minh Chin. And it was very interesting because there was this all this discussion in the Sierra Leonean press about Vietnam, like, oh my God, Southeast Asia, it's this huge trading block, 600 million people, Vietnam, 100 million people, lots of you know possibilities of trade. And it's amazing to me that this is 2022 and African countries are discovering Southeast Asia for the first time. Similarly, in Latin America, I'm not an expert, but I don't see a whole lot of discussion in terms of Latin America, Southeast Asia trade. So what is the barrier here? Why hasn't this happened earlier? Well... Uh, the barrier, to some extent, I would argue very strongly, has been a mental barrier. For over 200 years, um, Latin America's diplomatic uh, 
trade, uh, investment relations, had largely been with these two traditional partners, with the United States and with uh, a number of Western European nations. And the notion that there was anything worthwhile doing elsewhere was quite alien. Now, that has changed very dramatically in the course of the current century. Let me give you only one number. In, in the year 2000, total trade between China and Latin America was $10 billion. In 2021, this figure was $451 billion. That is an increase of 45 times in uh, 20 years. And that's more, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, that's more than what Latin America does with the United States now. So China well, is no, the it, region's it is, largest it, it partner. It is not. It is not. But it is more about what South America does. Sorry. Not Latin America does more trade with the United States because of Mexico. Okay. So South America. Okay. Yes. So South America does more with China. Yes. South, South America does more trade with China than with the United States. Now, that, of course, means this, this is a real wild card that has been thrown into the game. And that is a very different uh, situation. Now, uh, you refer to Southeast Asia. I've always been a great champion of what ASEAN has done and what a number of, of uh, countries in ASEAN uh, have done. We should do much more with them. They are an example, it seems to me, not just in terms of economic, regional economic integration and the tremendous progress and growth uh, that they have had. I mean, I've been to Vietnam on several occasions. I'm very impressed with what they have done. But also in terms of their uh, diplomatic drawing power. Uh, you know, when there is an ASEAN summit, uh, they will have the president of the United States, the president of China, the president of Russia, come and address them, you know, and that doesn't happen in, in many other parts of the developing world. So I fully agree with you. ASEAN is a very important reference point for Latin America. For the moment, just just to return to to, uh, to an earlier conversation we had a few weeks ago with with uh, the Hoover Institution scholar Elizabeth Economy, she made the point powerfully that um, that in in lots of ways the the traditional Western powers, Europe and, and the United States, are the you know they they're the last bastions of of these of these or they are significant bastions of 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 a kind of a liberal liberal um, order that that values individual rights that values minority rights and that um, and and that that kind of position that principled position has to is, is also underlying their their position on Ukraine um, that's extrapolating from from her work because we, we, we spoke to her before the Ukraine crisis really erupted um, so um, you know so so what does one what does one take away from that position? That you know, kind of this 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 narrative that the West is in its in its Ukraine position at the moment, kind of guarding this flame of of individual rights and and, and you know and 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 liberalism, and that because you know Russia's position obviously and this is clear, but then you know for example China being a, a, an authoritarian state centered planned economy, that 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 China and and the countries by by extension that align themselves with China and Russia, therefore don't care for these individual rights or, you know, or are essentially coddling human rights abuses. Like, you know, where, where does the, the kind of active non-aligned world kind of land in, in the parameters of that argument? No, I think that is a well-worn argument, but it seems to me it reflects also a tremendous uh, hypocrisy. What we are seeing, for example, in the case of the war in Yemen that has been going on now for Eight years, I think it is. Uh, a quarter of a million people have died, uh, largely from weapons supplied by NATO countries to Saudi Arabia. That last time I looked, is not exactly a paragon of liberal 
democracy. So uh, you, you have other cases. We have seen, you know, interventions in Libya, interventions in Iraq. Uh, the West and the NATO countries have been backing wars in the global south for a long time uh, without paying any attention to human rights, to uh, the liberal values they suddenly seem to have uh, discovered are so important to them. So I think that there is a tremendous uh, double standard here. And that is what uh, people in the global south are seeing through. Uh, why all this big thing about uh, Ukraine? Well, because it is happening in Europe. Why nobody pays any attention to Yemen? Well, because, you know, these are Arab countries. Who cares about them? So I really don't buy into this notion that uh, what we're really seeing here is this epic struggle between democracy and autocracy. And uh, this is also belied by the fact that some of the most uh, significant democracies in uh, the global south, in the world, India, uh, Brazil, uh, South Africa, are not buying into this, and they are not taking the sides uh, of the uh, of the United States and of the NATO countries in this, particularly on the issue of sanctions, because they see through this mechanism that in fact they will pay a much higher price than Ukrainian uh, themselves because of the sanctions impact on. Uh, the populations of of these countries. Yeah, just to further that point, that there's been a severe rollback in democracy in the United States itself. Freedom House, which is funded by the United States Congress, rates the United States at 83 out of 100 in terms of the world's democracies, which puts it right on par with Panama and Romania. And so really, in many respects, the United States itself is devolving into a developing world democracy, which is it has many problems in it, and it's not making any progress. I want to talk to you a little bit about the role of populism, because that's an X factor in all of this. So you talked about at the beginning of our discussion about the impact that COVID had in South America. Well, a big reason that South America's numbers looked as bad as they did is because of one man in particular, and that's uh, Brazilian President Bolsonaro, who you know adamantly refused to take any of the precautions. He followed Donald Trump's example. And then similarly in Mexico, uh, President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador did the same thing, did not aggressively pursue vaccines, and they had much higher death rates. Both were populists. In Africa, there's a situation of military coups in a number of countries. So populism isn't quite the issue, but there is militarism that's there. Here in Southeast Asia, you have governments like in Cambodia that are unaccountable to the people. Myanmar is a coup as well. So between coups and populist leaders, they don't necessarily fit nicely into these types of camps. How do those factors align within your theory? Sure. No, I think that, that is a very good and valid point. I mean, there are two points here. One of them, it seems to me, and sadly and regrettably, uh, it is quite obviously that quite obvious that uh, democracy is on the retreat uh, across the world. That is not a good thing, and that is something we ought to work to uh, reverse. That's the first point. The second point is that it is important here to uh, distinguish between uh, you know um, foreign policy and, uh, you know, internal politics. What we are putting on the table in terms of active uh, non-alignment is uh, the policy that countries in the Global South uh, should take uh, in the conflict between the big powers. And what we are saying is that, obviously, the key point here is not to take sides in, in a sort of, you know, dogmatic, preemptive fashion. There are some issues in which... Uh, 
countries say in Latin America, will be closer to the United States on issues of democracy, on issues of human rights. There are others in which they will be closer to China, say on international trade. Right now, what we see is extraordinary. Uh, in the United, United States, it's become the champion of what uh, they call fair trade. Now, that used to be an argument that was made in the third world. And now, suddenly, the United States has ceased to support free trade and is supporting what they call fair trade. Uh, you could say some of the same things about, say, uh, the United Kingdom. Now, what I'm saying is that it is important for countries in Latin America to be clear that they have to discern what their own national interest is and act accordingly and not simply be allow themselves to be pressured into siding either with uh, Washington or with Beijing or with Moscow just uh, for the sake of it. In, in this new line movement, do you discern new forms of cooperation emerging? Or are we at the moment still just simply at looking at individual states pursuing individual interests? One, one of the challenges of, of the original non-aligned movement was a, a, a challenge of leadership from the South, you know, finding, finding um, shared interests, you know, between different disparate regions of the global South and the, the, the kind of colonial, colonized and post-colonized world, and then kind of pulling, you know, trying to kind of pull in, in, a, in a kind of a shared direction forward. So far, I'm, I personally, I'm not really seeing that in, you know, in, in, in relation to, to even, for example, the, the, the very immediate issue of Ukraine. I'm not really seeing, for example, the, the emergence of a very, of, of a, a, you know, some kind of new approach to the Ukraine crisis coming from the global south. At the moment, it seems very atomized. Um, what is your take on that, on that issue? Well, what I would say is the following. For now, I mean, this is something, you know, our book came out in, in November. This is you know, very much early days. Uh, the point we are trying to make has to do with a doctrine. There is with a certain approach on how to conduct the foreign policy, how to conduct the international relations of Latin America. Uh, I don't think we are yet in the stage of a movement. So what we are talking about is a certain approach, a certain outlook on how to manage the international relations of Latin America. That's number one. Now, what is remarkable though, is that uh, when we first broached this in an article, uh, you know, two years ago in, in the uh, Latin America edition of the Foreign Affairs Journal, uh, the criticism that was made of our uh, proposal of acting in alignment was that one, it was anachronistic in the sense that it sort of harked back to the 50s and 60s, uh, a period that, according to some critics, was quite uh, irrelevant to today. And second, they say it is utopian because, I mean, if you look around in Latin America today with you know, a number of conservative governments, who is going to take this up? Well, as it happens in the course of the past, you know, um, six months or so, what we are seeing is that even though governments may not call it that way, They are basically acting according to it. Let me give you an example. In December, there was a meeting they called Summit of Democracies in Washington, D.C., and many Latin American governments were invited and participated. A week before that, there was a meeting of something called the China-Latin America Ministerial Forum at level of foreign ministers, and uh, many Latin American governments participated in it as well, from the left, from the center, and from the right. They didn't see any incompatibility between participating in both of those events. That's number one. And number two, 
uh, we have the situation of the uh, Ukraine war, in which countries like Brazil, like Mexico, uh, have uh, refused to support uh, the uh, expulsion of uh, Russia from the United Nations Human Rights Council and have been very uh, critical of the whole uh, approach to sanctions that have been has been espoused by the West. So uh, we are not seeing a movement yet, but we are seeing that in practice, many Latin American countries are in fact act- acting according to uh, our notion of active alignment. I would agree that you're not seeing a movement, but you're definitely seeing a trend. And it seems like what you call active non-alignment is actually putting a name to that trend. It's framing it because, again, what we've seen over the past five or six years as the U.S.-China tensions have intensified is that countries in Southeast Asia, in South America, and certainly in Africa, have been very, very vocal and outspoken in their determination not to have to pick sides. And in fact, under the Biden administration, one of the key messages coming out of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is, we don't want you to choose a side. It's, a, it's really in many ways acknowledging what this, what you guys, I guess, maybe are potentially calling the active non-alignment movement is to say it's the reality that countries don't want to be able to be forced to take a side. They want to deal with the United States. They want to deal with China and they want to keep their options open. Is that a fair way of framing it? Absolutely. And let me give you an example. Uh, we at the uh, opening of the Winter Olympic Games in uh, Beijing on, on fourth, uh, the 4th of February, uh, we had uh, not one but two uh, Latin American leaders participating, despite uh, the Western boycott, despite the Anglosphere's uh, boycott of uh, the opening of the Olympic Games. The president of Argentina was there, Alberto Fernandez, and uh, the president of Ecuador, Guillermo Lasso, was there. And they uh, not only went for the opening, for the sort of protocol side of things, but they also had a very substantive agenda. Uh, president Fernandez announced the signing on of the Memorandum of Understanding on the Belt and Road Initiative for Argentina, making Argentina the biggest country in Latin America to sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative. Many others have as well, but Argentina is the biggest. And uh, President Lasso, who is a conservative uh, businessman, he uh, uh, initiated... Uh, the negotiations for a free trade agreement between Ecuador and China. So our point is that active non-alignment is not a left or right issue. It is a practical, pragmatic approach to foreign policy that should be followed by our countries. Excuse me for interrupting you, but are you saying that President Alberto Fernandez of Argentina is an example of active non-alignment when he was in Beijing, signed up for the Belt and Road, met with... Vladimir Putin, and denounced the IMF. That doesn't seem like non-alignment to me. Well, well, I mean, let me put it this way. Uh, shortly before that, uh, Argentina had uh, negotiated a deal with the uh, IMF to, um, you know, uh, basically uh, renegotiate its, its debt uh, to the IMF. And the argument was made that he shouldn't be going to Beijing and it shouldn't be going to Moscow. Uh, because he was sending the wrong signal uh, just at the time when the decision was being made. Well, the decision was made and the deal came through. So, you know, um, Argentina is dealing both with the United States and with uh, Russia and with China. 
I suppose the one one way of framing the, the the discussion slightly differently is that this emergence of of all of these options for these countries and their you know what what it would is seems to be cohering in 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 this trend of active non-alignment could also be read as as a decline in Western influence, or like particularly maybe a decline in Western leverage, in order to you know kind of to 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 get countries around the world to to you know to to follow a Western agenda, um, d- does that? Do you think the two things mean the same thing? Um, and you know, and where do you see that trend going? With you know kind of particularly the, the trend of Western leadership over the next 10, 15 years. That's a very good point. Well, let me give you an example that it seems to me illustrates this uh, very clearly. And that has to do with the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, The Belt and Road Initiative, which I was arrived in in Beijing in 2014, shortly after the announcement of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, by the uh, Chinese government. I was very skeptical initially. It seemed to be the, this huge amount of money, who is going to provide the money, who is going to run this and so on. But in fact, it is happening, as you know, uh, as well uh, as I do. Now, what I found fascinating is that here you have this uh, remarkable situation, which nobody disputes, that there is a tremendous need for infrastructure investment in in the global south, in, in Asia, in Africa, in, in Latin America. Uh, in fact, the reason, uh, you know, this whole thing came up is because there was one diagnosis that said that Asia needed $8 trillion worth of uh, investment in infrastructure. Now I think it's up to $25 trillion. But anyway, that was the reason uh, this this uh, was put on the table by the uh, Chinese government to provide connectivity uh, throughout Asia and uh, across all the way to Europe. Very well. For Quite a number of, of years, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative has been decried by uh, Western nations, saying it is debt diplomacy, uh, that uh, white elephants and red elephants are being built, uh, that there's nothing to it, and so on. Well, you know, after uh, nine years, the tune has changed. Uh, you know what they say, um, imitation is the best form of flattery. Suddenly, uh, Western nations, the G7, the United States, European countries saying, well, we can perhaps provide some infrastructure as well, build back better. We can also provide loans. The truth is that Western countries have been largely missing on action on that particular front, on infrastructure. The World Bank basically checked out on building infrastructure projects many years ago, many decades ago. So when China stepped in, well, it came in to fill a void. You know what they say, nature abhors a vacuum. So I'm happy to see that Western countries are now saying we can also provide infrastructure. Competition is a good thing. And hopefully we'll see uh, Western companies participating in tenders, in bids to develop our bridges, tunnels, railways uh, and ports. Let's just be very clear here. It's only competition if there's actually two sides that show up to compete. So there's been this wonderful rhetoric about B3W and Global Gateway, but we are fast approaching the one-year anniversary of the announcement of Build Back Better World that happened at the G7 Summit last year, and literally nothing has happened. <laughs> so, nothing has happened. So let's let's not give the Americans credit that they don't deserve. The Europeans at least have started on it with Global Gateway. One has to wonder, though, with 
a price tag of 50, $100 billion now to rebuild Ukraine, will the priorities not shift to Eastern Europe and Europe away from the global south looking forward? Again, that's a conversation for another day. I just want to close our discussion today reflecting on some of the conversations that Kobus and I have had over the years. Uh, last year, we spoke with a representative of the Argentinian government who is super smart, and he has a PhD from Fudan University. He's one of the very few China scholars in the Argentinian government, and he was very clear that said the knowledge deficits about China and Asia in South American governments is acute. In Africa, we spoke with a professor at Witts University, the head of the Witts University Governance School, and he said that the same issue is affecting in South Africa, as well as in many African governments, that their knowledge deficits about China and Asia are acute. And here in Southeast Asia, uh, most people are focused on China, Japan, and the U.S., but they don't know much about Africa and South America. So if this is to work, knowledge has to improve across the different regions, but yet that seems to be an incredibly difficult challenge. Languages, cultures, politics, histories, all of these different things. How do you advance that very simple, basic human knowledge of of different people and where they're coming from in order for these groups of people to work more closely together? Well, that is a a very important uh, idea. Um, I, you know, spent uh, three and a half years in, in Beijing, and one of the things I try to do is to promote greater, you know, student exchanges, people to people exchange, and so on. I think that it's absolutely central. The Confucius Institutes uh, play uh, an important role uh, in this regard. Uh, what I tell uh, my students is that if they speak Spanish, English, and Mandarin, uh, it's like having, you know, a second profession. Um, so uh, it's part of this uh, change in mentality that we need to effectuate. Um, I'm convinced that this will be very much the Asian century. 60% of the population in the world today is in Asia. And so unless uh, people in South America, students, professionals, uh, leaders, uh, pay a lot more attention to what is happening there and provide themselves with the tools to understand what is happening there, we will be missing out on that. Well, I hope you're right, because more of this cross-cultural pollination is going to be absolutely essential if this movement, as you call it, the new or the active non-alignment movement is going to eventually form. We have to know more about one another. So I think that's a a basic thing. Uh, Ambassador Jorge Heine is a research professor at the Party School of Global Studies at Boston University. He's also a former Chilean ambassador to South Africa, to India, and to China, and the author of Active Non-Alignment and Latin America, A Doctrine for the New Century, a co-author, I should note. Uh, That is available on Amazon in Spanish, correct? Is there an English edition that's also available? Yes. Well, it is not available right now, but uh, it will be published by Anthem in uh, London uh, later this year. Later this year. Okay. I saw the, the page on uh, on Amazon, so that was very exciting. But if you'd like to get a preview of what Ambassador Heine is thinking about in this new book and some of the ideas that he's going to lay out with his co-authors, you can go to our website at China Africa Project. Africa, Latin America, and the active non-alignment option is available on our site. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Ambassador Heine, thank you so much for helping to shed light on this important topic at this crucial time in history. And I think you are the kind of person to help give shape to some of the new ideas in this new era that we still don't know 
what it is. So we really do appreciate your time on that. Um, are you on social media? I am. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Yes, I, I am. At, uh, in Twitter, I am Jorge, J-O-R-G-E, Heine, H-E-I-N-E-L. Jorge Heine L. Wonderful. I will, I will put a link to Instagram and to Twitter in the show notes. Ambassador Heine, once again, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. Man, Kobus, that was a lot of ground we covered there. I don't, I don't know if I have a clear understanding after our conversation of where we are in this moment, and that might be reflective of the complexity of the time. And, and I, I didn't expect that he was going to have a magic wand and say, okay, this is what it is. Now you understand everything. So yes, I do understand the key point of different regions interacting more with each other. But the problem with that is, and he made some references to this, AAIB, the Confucius Institutes, NDB, invariably that will come back into China's orbit. And by some perceptions, and again, this is an art, not a science here, by some perceptions, that's going to be seen taking a side. And at least in the U.S. perspective, it's going to be seen taking a side, and the Australian and the Japanese and potentially the South Korean and, and so forth. So... Again, the lines are going to be very blurry here. This is going to be something incredibly difficult to maneuver our way through. And we have to start really grinding through to better understand what is the framing of this new era that we're in? Because I am I think I'm like a lot of people where I'm very confused. Yeah, like me too. You know, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that, that this is really only emerging. Um, you know, so, so we, we're going to see the, the, the contours of it, you know, as, as, we, as we go on. For me, one of the big questions becomes, you know, what, what happens to collectivity, um, particularly at a moment when, you know, we, you know, there, there's no way forward for for humanity in relation to climate change than to forge some form of collective everything, right? Kind of like some like collective thinking about uh, about all kinds of issues like trade, like transport, like all of these different things. Collective thinking about solutions to, to you know to, to, to move forward. And at the moment the the situation seems to really fall back on these you know, there's a very state-centric way of thinking, right? Um, you know, where, where the, you know, there, there's a pressure, the, you know, the, this pressure on individual governments from, you know, from the Western-led coalition and then resistance against that pressure coming from from places like China. Um, there's, there's very little kind of articulation of anything shared um, in this. And the fact that, that there is also, you know, even like I, I'm, you know, you know, I'm I'm a strong kind of critic of of the the kind of West's blindness to some human rights you know abuses in favor of other human rights abuses like we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, but that doesn't take away from the reality that the situation in Ukraine really is bad. Um, and this was this was a peaceful country that was living minding its own business, and now it's a wasteland. You know, um, and that the starkness of that human rights abuse isn't being addressed in 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 this moment um even as you know kind of as it's correct that other stark human rights abuses like in the case of yemen are also not being addressed so so for the so i think that is what worries me is like are, are we really seeing a movement or are we seeing simply a bunch of states all in it for themselves well if the past what 18 months is any indication yeah, that's exactly what we've been seeing. So on debt relief, have we seen a collective voice from the global south on debt relief? No. 
Have we seen a collective voice on vaccines? No. We've seen a lot of individual presidents like your own who've been incredibly outspoken and angry. But he, in many ways, is the exception, not the norm. And, you know, so looking at debt relief, looking at uh, certainly COVID vaccines, and now on food security, where is the collective action? And, and I'm just not sure there's a forum yet to bring people together to have that, or people are stretched so thin right now in terms of managing so many different crises that, you know, the idea that, you know, the Vietnamese government is going to start kind of working and collaborating with the Panamanian government and then going to bring in the Sierra Leonean government to kind of align on a position paper that will then be announced at a forum just seems a little bit difficult under the circumstances. So how does collective action actually work? Yeah, well, one of the big problems there is that there's no institutional base for this kind of collaboration. And that's why maybe people say we need another Bandung movement now to create that. But how do you then fit in a guy like Bolsonaro, who, you, you know, he is definitely from one of the major economies and the major countries in the global south, but behaves like an asshole from the global north? Well, you know, um, that's that is a, a really a really important question, you know, um, and you know, and 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 below that question lies the, the even bigger question of what are the unified values that are bringing the, the this group of this group of, of, of states from around the world together, um, you know, in the case of the non-aligned movement, the original online movement, a lot of that came from the experience of colonization, um, and. You know, and and when one reads the the kind of readouts from the original Bandung um, conference, you can see that those those preoccupations are really f first and foremost in their minds. You know, kind of they 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 that that is where some of these this kind of pressure for for example not not interfering in in the sovereign affairs of other states. You know that you know it came within that kind of new imperial context of 1955 when we saw very much the kind of the interference in in in, so in newly sovereign states from you know from former colonizers. At the moment, a lot of that has been has become more abstract um, as those states themselves have become more powerful, um, and you know so so it, it it then raises a lot of questions of like what are these states actually in favor of? Like, what are they actually moving towards? Well, again, I thought debt relief and vaccines would be, or climate change would be kind of those topics that people would rally around. You and me both. And we'd be able to find common interest in. But it doesn't seem like that's gaining any traction because if they haven't done it yet, it doesn't look like they're going to do it. And as you pointed out, there is no forum to do this in. The United Nations is weak and the United Nations is basically at the at the control of the great powers. So that's not going to be a forum that's, that's going to be ideal for global South countries to meet. You would have to create something new. But invariably, if you create something new, countries like China would play a disproportionately important role. And then all of a sudden it gets sucked into the US-China or the Western-China divide because the United States would read this as an anti-US initiative, right? I mean, it's hard to, to sidestep these issues unless China stepped away from it, but that would be weird if China was not part of a global South movement. So now we're, we're right back at zero again. 
even if you leave the US and China out of that equation, you know, say say you, you're trying to build consensus in the global south, only the global south on climate change, you're immediately facing a bunch of countries that that have, you know, that, that are making a lot of money out of selling gas and, and coal, and a bunch of countries that are in facing immediate extinction because other countries are selling a lot of gas and coal, you know. So there's no there's no kind of unified natural position that just comes out of southness itself. Um, it, it has to it has to be formulated, and I think and I think that is there's a there's a huge challenge and there. No one's going to agree on the formulation then, if that's the case, and that's that. It, and in many ways, what you've just said explains why there is no unified position and why there probably won't be, because the agendas are simply at too diverse and at cross purposes in many respects. Well, I mean that that then like that then raises all of these real kind of like doom laden doubts you know about about what's what are we gonna do in relation to climate change in relation to kind of flagrant human rights abuse like we're seeing in ukraine you know it's like is there then just no way forward well you're seeing what happens right there in south africa i mean this past week has shown you what the future is going to look like what is the death toll up to now four five hundred i mean it's just devastating what's happened in southern south africa and yet, there's no move to do anything. I mean, there's no move in the United States to do anything. And if the GOP takes power again in the Congress and eventually in the presidency, that may be the end of it because they're going to pull out of the Paris Climate Accords again. We know what they're going to do. And then let's not even talk about Australia in terms of what they're contrib- contributing to to global climate change. And they're, they're not showing any signs of backing off because coal's too important of an industry in, in, in Australia. So if nobody's going to back off, then what do you do? And what ends up happening is South Africa writ large, right? I mean, so I don't see the future as being very optimistic and positive on this front. You know, this idea that, well, something has to be done. No, maybe something doesn't get done and we just muddle our way into disaster. Yes, well, (laughs) you know, it's... Which is what's happening right now. Literally, that's what's happening right now. So I hope... I really hope that ideas like Ambassador Heine's do start to gain some momentum. And it is so important that scholars like this are putting these ideas out there because putting shape to it is what we need right now. And there is no shape. There is no framing for this. So he is making a very valuable contribution to the discourse. So I highly recommend everybody to go take a look at his essay. Again, it's on our site. It's in the show notes. We'll put it out there. Um, listen, we're talking about these issues all the time and we're trying, as you see, we're struggling with this. I'll be honest with you. This is not something that we can, uh, that we can simply put in a, in a box and put a bow on it and say, this is it. And anybody who does that is probably writing on Twitter and they're full of poop. So don't believe it because these are really, really difficult issues to get through. And so this is what we're talking about. And Cobus, tell everybody about what you're doing with our francophone editor, Jeronima, every Thursday, where you're extending the discussions that we're having on the podcast and in the newsletter onto Twitter with live audiences. Yes, this is very fun. We, um, me and 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 Giro, um, are like we're co-hosting a, a regular Twitter space every Thursday. Um, at the moment, it's five p.m. South African time, but we might tweak the time going forward. But we'll 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 be announcing the the, the regular times on Twitter, and and it's really fascinating. It's you know we 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 announce a, a topic, we get a guest, and we kind of discuss it live, and then we get all of these these kind of this feedback from from Twitter 
um, Twitter users live on, on the platform. And it's fascinating. It's really interesting to see what people are thinking of. You know, the 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 unlike the, the podcast, the, the discussion on the Twitter spaces tends to go in, in many more directions because people bring in other other issues or other other examples. And it's super fun to do. It's very, very interesting. So that's at China AFR Project. That's our Twitter handle. We're, we've been doing it at 5 o'clock South African time, which we're discussing internally is potentially a very bad time because everybody's getting off of work. That's 4 p.m. in Nigeria. That's 6 p.m. in Kenya. So it's not a great time. So we're going to this week, we're going to try and push it later into prime time. So I think we said 8 p.m. South Africa time. Is that what we're, we're digitally talking about right now? And so we're going to try that. And so we're hoping that more of you will come out. So if you want to have a conversation every week with Giro and with Cobus on different topics, come to our Twitter page and join our Spaces discussion, because these are the kinds of discussions that we love having with you. And we love hearing from you. If you'd like to kind of participate in what we're doing, uh, we invite you to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. We're putting up videos. We're having Zoom calls. We're doing all sorts of cool things there with that community. And if you'd like to get our daily email newsletter, go ahead and subscribe at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You'll get full access to our entire website site with thousands of articles and the newsletter that Cobus is now editing every single day. So it's a fantastic resource. Ambassador Heine is a subscriber. We're very honored to have him and his colleagues at Boston University all subscribing there. Also, if you are a member of the Harvard University community or the Boston University community, you have unlimited access to the China Africa Project and you can sign up free of charge to our newsletter. You have to be on the library networks to do that and use your school email address to sign up. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We're back to two shows every week now. We'll be back again later this week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. I'm Eric Olander for Cobus Van Staden. We'll see you next time. Discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.